Awesome. Um, I wanted to just give you an update on the young adult ministry before we dive into the word here. Um, starting January 20th, we are going to go to having two services a month. So the first and third Saturday night of each month. And with that, um, there are going to be opportunities to get discipled. We're going to be starting small groups and groups for discipleship, um, as well as, like Emily said, recruiting people for serving as ushers, as greeters. Um, we're going to have kid builders. So if you are married, you have kids, or a single mom, we're going to have um, kid builders from infant to fifth grade. So a lot of exciting things coming up, and I wanted to let you guys know about that. Are you excited, as excited as I am about that? That's pretty cool. All right, let's pray, and we'll um, jump into the word for tonight. God, we are, we're in awe of who you are. Lord, in the midst of um, the, the busyness of Christmas and all the things that happen, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your house, to hear from you, God, and from your word. And so, Lord, open up our ears. Lord, we want to behold Jesus. We want to see him as uh, the son of God and for who he really is. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love Christmas um, because I got a revelation last year that Christmas isn't really a day. It's a season. And I didn't really appreciate that until last year because for me growing up, Christmas was like one day where you got a bunch of presents. But I realized that we can really prolong the Christmas season and get more out of it. Like it doesn't have to just be 24 hours. It can be a season of honoring God and giving thanks for his son. And that phrase that we greet each other with during this time, Merry Christmas, may describe where you're at right now in life. In the midst of parties and Christmas lights and watching movies like A Christmas Story for the hundredth time, hearing the Christmas hymns and songs in the malls, maybe this Christmas season, this merriness that's around really describes how your life is going. Life is going really well for you. But for others, maybe Christmas can sometimes be a busy season because life doesn't just stop during Christmas. Some of you are searching for jobs, going through applications. You're making that long commute to work. And Christmas can just seem like it just, it just goes by really fast. For some of you, maybe it's a lonely time. It's a time where you're reminded of loved ones who passed away who aren't going to be there to celebrate Christmas with you. Or maybe it's a reminder of the fact that you're more alone than you'd like to be. In the midst of some of your happiness, for some of you, your busyness, for some of you, your loneliness, what is the birth of a Jewish baby 6,000 miles from here 2,000 years ago what significance does it have for your life today? In the midst of Netflix and Christmas parties and all that you're going through, why does Jesus' birth matter? And that's what we're going to look at today. There was one person, at least one person, who thought that it should matter for your life today. And that was one of the apostles, Matthew, who wrote an account of Jesus' life. And if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can, there's an app called YouVersion that you can download. You can also just Google Matthew 1, colon, 18 through 25. And I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. 
Matthew 1, 18 through 25. It's also on the screen for you. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Matthew is the writer of this gospel. He was one of the 12 disciples, and he was a tax collector a Jewish tax collector that converted and followed Jesus. And he's writing to a Jewish audience in this gospel. And what Matthew is attempting to get at is that Jesus is not some isolated figure who rose out of obscurity claiming to be Messiah who just a few people followed and believed. Because during that time, there were people like that. There were others who claimed to be the Messiah. In fact, today I was reading a National Geographic article that uh, shared five people who claimed to be the Messiah today. So there's actually a guy in Russia with 5,000 followers. You can check him out online if that interests you. Um, but Matthew's, he's, he's differentiating Jesus from every other person, from every other person who's claimed to be the son of God. He's writing to a Jewish audience and his, as a Jew, who's knowledgeable in the scriptures, the Old Testament, He's going to pull out these prophecies, these Old Testament prophecies that point toward a Messiah. And the Old Testament is just rich with these prophecies. There's over 300 of them that point to a day when the Messiah would come. There's, these are very specific things. Things like that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. That he would unjustly suffer. He'd be pierced for the sins of mankind. That he would be born in Bethlehem. And so in the first two chapters of Matthew, Matthew is starting in a pretty good place for somebody that he's trying to show is the king of all kings, who's the Messiah. He starts with Jesus' birth. And the first two chapters, he gives these quotation formulas. And basically what he's going to do is he's drawing back to the Old Testament prophecies and showing how Jesus fulfilled these prophecies. Like in verse 22, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet." And what Matthew is getting at is Jesus isn't this isolated figure that just kind of rose up in a moment. He's getting at the fact that all of the scriptures of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible, point to Jesus. That this was all a part of God's plan to save the world of our sins. And in verse 23, he mentions a very specific prophecy. Now, the Jews during Matthew's day were expecting a Messiah, but they were expecting somebody who was rich, who was powerful, and who could overthrow the Roman Empire, who was the dominant force during that time. And so Matthew has a pretty tall task ahead of him because what he's going to say is that Jesus, this 
baby from a, a mom and dad who were very poor from an obscure village in Nazareth in an unknown, in a territory in Galilee that was kind of cast aside, that this Jesus is actually the Messiah. And so I want us to look at three things tonight. One is, what is this prophecy that Matthew brings up from the Old Testament? What is its context? Where does it come from? Secondly, was this prophecy really fulfilled in Jesus? And thirdly, should we care? Okay, so this couple thousand years ago, some guy said that there would be a Messiah. And then somebody 2,000 years ago said that that guy was Jesus. Does that have any bearing on our life today? And that's where we're headed tonight. The title of this message is Emmanuel, God with us. So let's look at this prophecy in verse 23. And if you have, if you can multitask, maybe go to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. That's where the prophecy in its original setting was, is located. This is in the prophet Isaiah. And it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so we got to look at the context of this original prophecy to truly appreciate how Jesus fulfills it, or at least how Matthew claims that Jesus fulfills it. I'll let you be the judge whether he does or not. But during this time, um, even from, from the very beginning, God had a plan to make Israel his chosen people, this nation of Israel. God had spoke to Moses that Israel would be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the nation of Israel split into two because of the people's sin. Split into Israel, which was the 10 northern tribes, and Judah, which were the two southern tribes. And God chose to continue his promises through the smaller nation of Judah. And in Judah, this king rose up named Ahaz. He was the great, great, great grandson of King David. But he was unlike, and he was altogether different from David in that he did not follow God. He was kind of the epitome of a terrible king. He reigned for 16 years, 740 years before Jesus, and he lived this luxurious lifestyle. He worshiped a false god named Baal, and he sacrificed his own son on the altar of Baal. And as a punishment for his sins, God brought a nation called Syria and the northern tribes of Israel up against Judah. That was the judgment of God. And during this time, remember, this is around 770, 740, somewhere around there, B.C. Assyria, you have Syria, you have Judah, you have Israel. But then there's, this, there's another country called Assyria, which is this powerful nation. It's the most powerful nation in the world. And Judah, Judah was looking at Assyria as this world power, as someone who could protect them from Syria and from Israel. And Ahaz, going up against Syria and Israel, was completely terrified. It says in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 2, that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And God shows up on the scene through the prophet Isaiah. Now, picture, here's this king who's a very wicked king, one of the most wicked kings in Judah's history, and God is going to speak to him. Imagine what you think God is going to speak to him. This is a guy who's worshipped false gods. He sacrificed his own son. He's lived in opulence while his own people have suffered. And God approaches him through the prophet Isaiah, speaks to him, and the first words he says 
to Ahaz is do not fear. I'm with you. I'm going to protect you from Syria and Israel. If you trust in me and you don't look to some outside source like this other nation, Assyria, I'll protect you and you don't have to worry about these two nations who are coming against you. This is the mercy and compassion of our God is that he would look at a sinful, wicked king and the very first words he says to this king is, I'm with you. I promise to protect you. And God speaks again to Ahaz, and this is what he says through the prophet Isaiah. He promises Isaiah, or I'm sorry, he promises Ahaz that he can ask for any sign, any kind of evidence that he wants to, so that he really knows that God is with him. He says in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 11, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God is speaking to Ahaz and saying, I'm with you, I'm with these armies I'm against these armies with you. And I want you to know that you can ask for any sign you want as deep as Sheol, which was the place of the dead, okay, house the, the wicked and the, the righteous. It was kind of a temporary holding place in the Old Testament. Ask for a sign as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ahaz, I am with you. And those were words that Ahaz's great, great, great grandfather, David, had actually penned in Psalm 139. David is pouring out his heart before God. He says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. David got this revelation that God is everywhere. And if God is everywhere, then he can trust God wherever he is. And so God is extending this promise to Ahaz and saying, look, I am everywhere. I'm even with you in the midst of these two enemy armies. You can trust me. Ask me for any sign. And this is what Ahaz says. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to a test. Now that sounds really pious. It sounds like Ahaz had a lot of faith, but really it's the complete opposite. Because Isaiah responds to Ahaz after he refuses the sign by saying this, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Meaning, dude, you've led this whole country into idolatry. Now you're going to mess with the God of the universe? Why was Isaiah so mad that Ahaz rejected this sign? It was because Ahaz's rejection of the sign was really a rejection of God. What Ahaz was saying is, God, um, thanks for your promise of protection, but I don't really need you. I got this nation, Assyria, who's going to help me. They're the most powerful army. They've promised to come to my aid. I'm good. And in fact, Assyria accepted the same gods that Ahaz worshipped. They included the gods of Baal. So Ahaz realizes, wait a second, if I accept this sign, I actually have to submit my life to God. But if I go over here to Assyria, then I get to keep my gods and keep doing what I want to do. And so this is what the prophet Isaiah responds, and he's speaking on behalf of God. He says in verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 7, or verse 14, excuse me, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. What God is saying to Ahaz is, there's going to be someone that comes after you from your line who's everything that you were supposed to be, a righteous king. He's going to be someone who leads my people in justice. 
but it's going to be a sign. It's going to be a miraculous thing because this child is going to be born of a virgin. If you don't know, virgins don't give birth, okay? It's going to be a miracle. And that that baby who's going to come shall be called Emmanuel, which literally means God with us. All God wanted to do for Ahaz was to give him his presence. And this is the story of human history. God has a heart, has the heart and desire to be one with his people. He desires to commune with us, to fellowship with us, to be with us. But man over and over again rebels against God. What Ahaz does is no different than what humans have done through the course of history. We reject God, we sin against him, and our own sin separates us from God. So God says, you've spent all this time trying to get to me as a human race, and now I'm going to come to you. I'm going to send you my very best. I'm going to send you my son to come to the earth so that you can be with me. And that's the incredible promise that God would send his son to the earth, he would give us Emmanuel, God with us. So Ahaz rejects the sign. He aligns himself with Assyria, and it works for a moment. Assyria wipes out the two enemies that were facing Ahaz and Judah, but eventually that very same nation that he clung to, Assyria, subjugated Judah into slavery. And this promise of a Messiah hangs in the air for 700 years. And so now Matthew picks up the promise 700 years later, and he's attempting to make the case that Jesus, the son of a poor couple in a relatively anonymous town of Nazareth, is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah, that Jesus is a virgin, or Jesus is the son of a virgin, and that his name will be Emmanuel. So Matthew starts his gospel, the first chapter, giving a genealogy of Jesus. And it's pretty typical. It's like a family tree of what a genealogy would be. He starts with Abraham, because Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. Abraham's the father of the faith. He goes to David. He goes to Joseph. And there's this, this repetition of this person was the father of this person, and this person was the father of this person. But then he gets to Joseph. And he says, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. He does it a little bit differently. And the reason being is, what he's trying to show is that Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. He cuts right to the chase and explains this change-up in the genealogy in the very first verse of the, of the passage that we looked at in verse 18 that when his, meaning Jesus' mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Here's what Matthew's saying. Jesus is the son of a virgin. That this virgin birth was the fulfillment of a sign 700 years before. That before Mary and Joseph came together, Mary was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. That this Messiah is both fully human and fully divine. He had to be fully human. He had to be born of a woman like Mary because we needed someone who was a human to be a substitute for our sins. The wages of sin is death. We needed somebody to step in who was a human 
who could make atonement, who could be a substitution for the sin, for the death that we deserve. But this Messiah had to also be God because every human sins. We need somebody who could live perfect, who could overcome death, and that was Jesus. He was fully human. He was born of Mary, but he was fully God. His father was not biologically Joseph. His father was God. And this is one of the two pillars of the Christian faith, Christmas and Easter, that Jesus was born of a virgin. That miraculous conception is what allowed Jesus to live a perfect life to die on the cross for our sins. And then Easter is what we celebrate when Jesus rose again, that Jesus really is the, vir- the, the son of a virgin and that his birth was miraculous. In verse 19, it says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, this is a pretty natural response. Imagine you're in a relationship and the person you're in a relationship with says, hey, I'm pregnant and you haven't been with her, how would you respond? Joseph's a just man. During that time, he could have taken her to court. He could have made a public spectacle out of her, but instead he decides to just divorce her quietly. But imagine the confusion that he's going through right now. Imagine the shame he's going through, the pain. During this time, a man would save up for years to afford his wife. Just like we have engagement rings, they had a bride price. And somewhere in the neighborhood of a modern equivalent of $250,000 is what you pay for your wife. And so Joseph has just made this incredible financial investment. He's brought this woman in that he's about to be married to who is now gonna be a part of his, his family who he's gonna start a family with. His whole future is now wrapped up with her and now she's come and said that she's pregnant. Imagine what he's going through during this time. And as he considered these things, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Don't miss this. In the midst of this man's confusion, in his shame, in his pain, the angel tells him, Joseph, God is with you. Literally, he's he's with you right now. He's in your wife's bosom. She is going to conceive and have this Messiah, God with you, Emmanuel. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And this is the thrust of this whole passage. This is how Jesus would be Emmanuel, that he would save the people from their sin. See, the issue has never been God. He's always wanted to be near. He's always wanted to be a loving father and have fellowship and relationship with us. us. The issue has always been us. Our sin is what keeps us from experiencing God's nearness. We are Ahaz. We're puffed up in pride. We're looking to other things as gods. Whether it's a relationship or a job or a new toy or something to fill the longing that's in our hearts. Over and over again, we reject God. And so God sends his son Jesus to save us from our sins, to save us from us. 
Jesus is Emmanuel. See, here's the irony, is that when Isaiah asked Ahaz for a sign, a sign as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven, although Ahaz refused the sign, God sent that sign anyways. Jesus Christ would live a perfect life and he would die. And when he died, he descended to Sheol. He descended to the place of the dead. He ripped off the gates of Sheol and all those Old Testament saints who believed in God, he pulled out of Sheol and into new life. Jesus appeared to the the disciples and to over 500 people and then he ascended to heaven. Literally, God gave a sign that was as deep as Sheol and as high as heaven. Jesus Christ is this Emmanuel, this sign. And Matthew has laid out the case that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14, that he was born of a virgin, that he's Emmanuel, God with us. And now we turn to that last question, which is, why does that matter? In the midst of perhaps the happiness that you're experiencing or the busyness or the loneliness, why does it matter that some guy thousands of years ago said that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy? It matters because God is not a tyrant. God is not a taskmaster. God is a loving father and he's patient and he is with us. He's with us in the happiness of Christmas parties, of new relationships, of promotions. He's with us in the busyness of job searches, of buying gifts and long commutes. He's with us in the middle of our despair and our hopelessness and our loneliness. God, through his son, Jesus Christ, is here. That you're not alone. God is with you. And really, it's not a question of whether God is with you. The question is, are you with God? Hear this first word of of this prophecy that Isaiah spoke that Matthew picks up in verse 23. He says, behold. Now that word means look at, pay attention to, stare at, treasure, stop and take notice of. See, Ahaz was too preoccupied with his gods to ask for a sign. So he missed it. Joseph, in the midst of his confusion, he got it. He heard the promise. He saw his wife. He saw what God was doing. And he obeyed the voice of this angel. And today, I want to put a sign in front of you. It's the same sign that Matthew's put before us. It's the sign of Jesus Christ, of Emmanuel, this pointer to God. And my question to you today is, are you too happy with the way life is going to be, to pay attention to this sign? Are you too preoccupied with the other signs and other things that are happening of a new job and things that are going well in your life? Are you too busy to speed, that you speed right past the sign that's in front of you? That you go through this Christmas season from holiday party to work function to going out and Christmas shopping, that you miss the very sign that sits in front of you, the whole reason for this Christmas season? In your pain or in your loneliness, are you so consumed by what you don't have that you miss the glorious sign that's in front of you 
Emmanuel. Are you with God? Because he has a longing desire to be with you. If you don't believe him, look at the Christmas story. Look at the fact that he did send his son. So if you are happy during the season, in your happiness, treasure Jesus. Use the things that he's given you to behold him. In your busyness, slow down. Take a moment and behold him by reading the word, by worshiping in song, by coming to church and joining other believers who are beholding him. In your loneliness, cry out to Jesus. Ask him to draw near to you. Ask him to open your eyes to the gift that he is. Be like Matthew and tell somebody about this sign. And if you don't know him, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know God with us, look at this sign today and surrender your life to him. Ask him to draw near to you. Let's pray.